Welcome to the Burn Hickory Podcast, where you can listen to our sermons each week. Our mission is to reach everyone around us with the hope of Christ. And our goal is that you'll find a place where you can learn, grow, live, and thrive in a faith family. Now let's get ready to dig into Scripture and see what God has for us today. Burn Hickory, this morning we have an incredible opportunity and honor to have someone with us, Colonel Lee Ellis, that not only has an incredible story of how God provided just protection and love and grace for him in the past, but he also has an incredible story of how God is using him now, even in the present and in the future. Would you do me a favor today and give an incredibly big Burn Hickory welcome to Colonel Lee Ellis. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you. Please be seated. I'm just an old country boy. In fact, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Thank you, Pastor Matt, Pastor Marty. Thank you all, all the staff here. It's been so great. You timely on things. You're so easy to work with. I just really appreciate you and appreciate this opportunity to be here with you all today. And I'm here primarily because Pam and Ron Juncker uh, suggested they invite uh, me over here for the day. So thank you, Ron and Pam. It's just they're great friends, and I just appreciate what you all have done. I'd also like to give a shout-out today to a couple of your members uh, John and Sue Clark, they're out of town on vacation, but uh, longtime friends of mine, and uh, they would be here if they weren't having a great time somewhere else. So, hi, John and Sue, love you very much, and Mary and I look forward to seeing you later in this year. So, I was saying, I grew up in the country, country kid, Union Baptist Church, and a small church down the country. But I'll tell you, you're talking about that rock and the foundation built on. Uh, I got a foundation there that has carried me through my life. As a young kid, we went barefooted from the 1st of May till the 1st of October. I mean, pretty much every day, all day long, in case there was something, we might have to wear a pair of shoes. But generally, we shed those shoes and we went barefooted. Our feet got tough as nails. That's just the way it was back in the country back then. It was a different world. There were not as many things to distract our attention. And so church was a center of our focus. I grew up going to Sunday school and church every Sunday, Sunday night. My mom and dad taught Sunday school classes. I was in Royal Ambassadors, RAs. It was just a, a powerful part of my upbringing. I learned scripture, memorized some scripture. We even memorized scripture in school back in those days. You got prizes if you could say certain scriptures in school, believe it or not. But that foundation was going to carry me through a lot in the years to come. I gave my life to Jesus Christ at age 11 at the August Revival. And that's been a, a foundation of all my relationships ever since. A foundation of my life. And so I'm going to share that with you today as I share a little bit of what happened and my journey along the way. You know, we're all on a journey, and we all want freedom, a journey to freedom. In Christ, there is great freedom. 
the freedom to experience his love and kindness and mercy and grace. But freedom was not free, is not free. He paid the price. And our forefathers paid the price, and that's why we're here today. I don't know if you know this or not, but 56, those 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, about nine of them were killed, two of them lost sons, two of them were captured, 10 of them had their homes burned as part of that war. So when they signed that document, they knew they're probably going to have to suffer. And as you hear my story, you'll see that suffering sometimes can be a blessing. Well, let's move ahead. I had always wanted to fly, and from the time I was like five or six years old. But growing up on that farm out working, we'd look overhead and all day long you'd see these airplanes going over, especially during the Korean War. There'd be formations of them going by. And so that was very encouraging to me, who's a kid who wanted to fly airplanes. So as quick as I got in Air Force ROTC, and then at my second year I got approved for a pilot slot, I got my flying license, as part of that screening program my senior year in college, and then it was off to Valdosta, Georgia for flight school. 53 weeks, and the slides are not changing, so I'll push one more time and turn it off and back on. There we go. Okay, 53 weeks of flight school in Valdosta, Georgia in the Air Force right after I graduated college. In fact, I hadn't even graduated. I'd finished all my classes, got commissioned, and went down there. 53 weeks later, I got my wings and an assignment to the F-4 Phantom fighter bomber. Now, this was the hot rod of the day. And when you're a kid who's 21 years old and you get the hot rod of the day that's supersonic, a kid who's plowed mules on the farm just a few years earlier, and now you get to fly a supersonic jet, that is some kind of good deal. But my assignment was F-4 Phantom Pipeline Southeast Asia, which meant as quick as we could get combat qualified in the F-4 Phantom, we were probably going to go to war. And so I went out to George Air Force Base, California, and this particular shot I actually took with an Instamatic camera. I had it in my pocket, that little Instamatic. It was the first one that had a a little uh, capsule or whatever you call it, thing I forgot now. I said it last time, but anyway, it was a small camera, new technology. I carried my flight suit. I said, I got to have a picture of this to show back home and folks. That was 1967, early 67. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? 50 something years ago. But that, that airplane was hot and the desert there was a great place to fly. We did everything they did in Top Gun plus the air to ground. So it was incredibly wonderful. Having a ball, but it was for a purpose because we were going to war. Quick as we finished our training, we headed to war, but I went back home and spent a little time with my parents, uh, four or five days back home on leave before I went to war. And I can remember that night before, we all sat down and prayed together. My mom and my dad and me, my brother was married and he wasn't there. But we sat there and prayed together. Had wonderful Christian parents. We prayed. We read the Bible. Uh, we weren't perfect. We are just old farm people. But we had great love, and we had that foundation of the Scripture and of a relationship with Christ 
And that was going to be the thing that was going to hold all of us together because the five and a half years I was a POW, you can imagine being a parent and your son or daughter disappears one day in combat and you don't know for sure if they're dead or alive for a couple of years. The parents, the families, they're the ones that went through even worse than we did. But they hung in there and stuck together. Well, it was important that I'd had a lot of training because on the 7th of November, 1967, I was shot down and captured. And uh, here's the hero shot we all did. This was uh, just a few months right after I got there and a few months before I was shot down. We had this, we have egos, fighter pilots, we have big egos, and so we wanted to send pictures back to our families and girlfriends and moms and dads, and so we all took one, and I'm glad we did, you know, kind of captured that time. I was uh, 23 years old there. By the time I was uh, shot down a few months later, I had 53 combat missions over North Vietnam, more over South Vietnam and Laos, flying in support of the Army in South Vietnam, Army and Marine Corps, and then in Laos, interdiction missions on the Ho Chi Minh Trail coming through over there. It was what we were trained to do. We were also trained to what to do if we had to eject from the airplane and what to do if we were captured. So we had great training, and it was going to come to be necessary because when that airplane blew up on the 7th of November, this airplane, as a matter of fact, Bravo Bravo 600, you see all those stripes on it? That was the airplane that was kind of the, our group commander's airplane. He had been an ace in the Korean War, a hero, a flying fighter pilot hero, and so they painted him up an airplane with all those, they call those victory stripes. And that was the airplane that blew up and put us in our parachutes, boom. Within seconds, that airplane was tossing Smoke in the cockpit, sticks frozen aft right, could not fly. I pulled that handle, canopy blew. It ejected me and blew me 50 feet in the air. It automatically separated me from the seat. The seat went this way and I went this way. And when it did, it pulled my D-ring and activated my parachute. Boom. Now I'm coming down in that parachute. My life didn't flash before my eyes. My whole focus was on evading capture because we were right over enemy gunners. And I didn't want to be captured. I did my parachute landing fall, just like you're supposed to do. I jumped in an old uh, bomb crater there, pulled out my radio and called a wingman overhead and said, I'm 50, 50 meters north of the river, start strafing 200 meters north, and I'm headed south to the river. Well, after the war, they said, we heard your call, but we was afraid we couldn't strafe that close. So... They surrounded me. They captured me within two minutes. Again, we were well trained, but that's when the fear hit. Shock. Because I don't know what's going to happen. They may even kill me right now. Well, the good thing was I had a good soldier in charge of me, taking me north. It's going to take me two weeks to get to Hanoi. We get bombed and strafed several times. We get bombed by our American air power and strafe, but then the local populace would get riled up in these little villages by the local communist cadre leader, 
and they would come after me. They would come after me with sticks and knives, reaching out, rocks, trying to hit me. And my militia guy who was taking me north, he and his squad protected me. I had better protection going to after being captured than anybody I ever talked to up there. It was like somebody was looking after me. The bombing they missed. There was foxholes we got in or bomb shelters. But I got to Hanoi a couple of weeks later. I didn't know what was going to happen. But what happened was I got put into this Hanoi Hilton, this prison built by the French in the 1890s, the Bastille Prison, with these high walls, 15 feet high, 5 feet thick. Nobody ever escaped from this prison. It was uh, going to be scary. They put us that first night into a cell, a cell that was 6 and a half feet wide. That's 6 inches wider than that and 7 feet deep. That's a foot deeper than that. Now, that's, a, that's about the small size of a, a bathroom down in Dallas, Georgia, okay, in a gas station in 1965, 67. But it was our bathroom, me and three other guys in this little cell for the next eight or nine months. Six and a half by seven, four guys. Well, it was our bathroom, and thank goodness we had this three-gallon bucket, and thank goodness it had a lid, and we got the empty every morning. But it was our living room, our dining room, and our bedroom. We didn't go anywhere else except for interrogation or torture. That was it. We never got outside except to walk outside and pick up our bowl of soup twice a day. Once in the morning, once in the afternoon, we got a bowl of uh, soup. Now, the soup was six months of uh, pumpkin soup twice a day. Three months of turnip green soup and three months of cabbage soup. Now, I say turnip greens. We call them uh, sewer greens. They were chopped up lily pads is what they looked like. And a cup of rice or a small baguette of bread. And we were hungry. Hungry and scared, cold. There was still bombing going on. We heard that. It was scary day to day. But somehow... We made it one day at a time. In those early days, I had a lot of nightmares. I dreamed I was in school, and the teacher was taking up homework, and I hadn't done mine, which happened a lot because I was a sorry student in high school. If they gave us 10 math problems, I'd do five and say, why should I do five more? I, got, I, got, I played football. I lettered in four sports, and I worked on a farm where I grew up. So why should I do 10 math problems? They're all the same. Why shouldn't I just do five? And I didn't care. But I had this nightmare about it. And I decided if I ever went home and ever went to school again, I was going to study. So when I came home, I did go eventually and get a master's degree. And I did study and I made all A's. And my mama was very proud of me. <laughs> she was a school teacher. <laughs> I think that's why I was so lazy about school. But in that cell, we had to stay positive. And when things go south and things get hard, you got to stay positive. And somehow, maybe you're down. Your teammate can encourage you. Or when you see your teammate is down, you go to them and encourage them. You don't let people be alone when they're struggling. 
we would risk our lives to get to somebody's cell that we knew had been tortured and were alone to let them know, man, we're proud of you. We're not leaving without you. Good job. You're part of our team. Don't let people be alone when they're hurting. You move toward them, not away. Encourage them because in their head, they're feeling low. Like when we were tortured, the first time I was tortured, I was laying in this filthy cell in handcuffs and leg irons with a... Uh, a scarf or a piece of a band, a bandage across my face so I, eyes so I couldn't see. And I felt like the lowest human being that ever worn the military uniform. I was such scum because I wasn't strong enough to beat them. And I gave in. They wanted me to fill out a three-page biography, and I did. But the only thing that was true in their biography, those, I filled it all questions, the only thing that was true was my dad's first name and last name because I hoped someday to write a letter. I did, but it was two years later, and I got my first one about two and a half years later. But when I got back to my cell, some of my buddies had been out in the same place, type of treatment I had been through torture, and they said, Man, we're proud of you. You did your best. We've done the same thing. And that was so encouraging to me. And over the next few weeks, I kind of recovered my self-esteem and felt worthwhile again because I knew that I had done my best and I had done, ended up the same place the other guys had. We would give in because they could make you do something and they wouldn't let you die. But we give them as little as possible and try to mess it up. That was the way we resisted every day. It was every day was a battle in that POW camp. You know, one of the things I had going for me there was I had memorized scripture. I had read the Bible a lot growing up. And the first psalm came to my mind, and I shared it. One of my POW buddies, in fact, the one who became my senior ranking officer and was such a great leader, he asked me, could I share some scripture with him? And this was one that had really encouraged me, the first psalm. I encourage you to read it and read it a lot. We had to guard our character because the enemy wanted us to make propaganda for them. They wanted us to be anti-war. They wanted us to help them win the war. And so they were trying to get us to sign anti-war statements or make anti-war videos or audios. That was their goal to use us in that way. And so that's where the, why they tortured us. They came up with a lot of excuses, but that's why they were torturing us. And in that cell, we had one guy who was collaborating with the enemy, and he happened to be the senior-ranking officer. And that's when Captain Fisher took over. We, one, day, one day when that senior officer was out of the cell, Captain Fisher said, I think I should take command and relieve him of command, and we mutinied. We said, yes, that's the right thing to do. So we did. He overthrew him, and he gave him an order to follow the code of conduct, which he didn't. But that's another story. But Captain Fisher did follow it, the code of conduct. Six articles that we all had to memorize in our training that describe how a person, a soldier, should behave if they're ever captured. And so we all knew it by heart. And we all, it brought us all together. That code of conduct was 
a whole life was dedicated to living up to that and not giving in to the enemy, not losing our loyalty to our country, being unified. This guy right here, he was some kind of tough, and he had great character. And for the next three years, he was my senior-ranking officer. And I wanted to be like him. You know, he had great influence over me. He had no idea how much influence he had, but I wanted to be like him. He was tougher than me. He was a New York State wrestling champion and wrestled four years at the University of Pennsylvania. So he was physically tough, mentally tough. He'd been slammed to the mat many times in his wrestling career. So he was not afraid of the enemy. Well, he was, I'm sure, but not to the way I was. I wanted to be like him, and I was tougher and tougher because of him. He's 84 now. He's the over-70 champion golfer at his golf club. So he's a pretty competitive guy, which was a good thing, too. Well, that's the way it was. The code of conduct was so important. And we, a few years ago in my company, we came up with the honor code. And I thought I'd just share you. It's a one-page you see it on the screen there, seven articles for the honor code that help us define what our character is going to be. Now, we all say that we have good character, okay? I've never met anybody that said I have bad character. But look around. Everything from politicians, business people, school teachers in Atlanta went to jail, pastors that slide off. We read about church staff people that slide off. We're all one step away from being crooks. I am every April 15th when I file my taxes. I tell my CPA, you get me as close to that line as you can and don't go over it. I don't want to pay a dollar more than I have to. A lot of people get over that line. I work hard to stay on this side of the line. But the really, we, here's the thing. We're human beings, okay? Human beings are not perfect. Think about David. You think Ellis is getting over the line? Think about David. What a great man of God he was. And what he did. And then to cover it up, he sent the Bathsheba's husband to the front line so he could be killed. That's humanity. That's why we have to stay connected to the word that's why we have to stay connected to the love of jesus so that we can keep growing and keep learning and reinforce ourselves this uh, code of conduct is on our website you can download it for free encourage you to get it look it over and then make up your own if you don't like this one if you can do better great but you're welcome to use it however you want we found it to be really good Scripture was so important. And one of that, part of that for me there, was the duty, the discipline. Hebrews 12, 11 says all, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. One of my cellmates came up with an a, a Expression. He would look over at me sometimes when we were going through difficult times. He'd say, Lee, pain purifies. <laughs> and that was true. Pain purifies. We don't volunteer to suffer. But when it comes, stick with your faith and walk through it and come out the other side. 
Life is hard, young people. Stick together and stick with your faith. From the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you watch the, go online, you watch the uh, trailer to it, you'll see this scene right here. It says, there's no, this is from the Lord of the Rings, the turn, Return of the King. There's no freedom without sacrifice. There's no victory without loss. And there's no glory without suffering. No glory without suffering. I think that's probably about right. If you're going to be great at anything, research shows it takes 10,000 hours. You want to be a concert pianist, world-class concert pianist, think about 10,000 hours of practice. You want to be a great football player, think about 10,000 hours of practice. There's no glory without suffering. You have to pay the price. That's the reality of it. Well, we have to learn to confront our doubts and fears. Doubts and fears will take you out from being the person you want to be. And that happened to a few people in the Hanoi Hilton POW complex, a few. But most of us were encouraged by our leaders, and most of us were striving to be courageous because we're military people, okay? Courage is at the center of your character. Without it, you will never be able to sustain your character. You'll never be able to be the person you want to be. So we had one guy in our cell that was not willing to face up. He started rationalizing, and Captain Fisher took over, relieved him of command, and off we went. Well, we also had another famous guy there, much more famous than any of us, and that was Colonel Robbie Reisner. He'd been on the cover of Time magazine. He was the most famous fighter pilot in the Air Force. He'd flown in Korea, shot down seven enemy MiGs, and he was a great guy, and he was a Christian. I got contact with him from, that, from our cell. I was able to push back the covering on our window and see into his cell one day, and I got his attention, and we started communicating covertly. And he would spell out one word at a time, one letter at a time, like A, B, C, D, and we started communicating. It took us several weeks, but he shared some of the things he had been through. He had been through torture. The ropes trick, your wrists are tied, your ankles are tied, and then they would cinch your elbows until they touched. And then one guy, torturer, would push them over your head while the other one stepped on your head and pushed it down into the floor. And sometimes they would tie your wrists to your ankles and leave you screaming. Reisner had already been through this several times. He'd been beaten a number of times. He was in solitary confinement during his seven and a half years of being a POW. He was in solitary confinement for more than four years. Incredible, courageous leader. And here's what he said in that conversation when he and I were passing signals back and forth. He said, I'm in charge, and here's what I want you to do. Be a good American. Live by the code of conduct. Resist up to the point of permanent physical or mental damage, and then no more. Go ahead and give in. Give as little as possible. Stay united through communications because they're going to try to divide us, which they did. They had guards in the hall. We weren't allowed to communicate with each other and talk with each other. Stay united through communication. Pray every day. Go home proud. Return with honor. Return with honor became our mission, our vision, and our values, all in three words. 
That was the battle daily, daily, a battle to return with honor because the enemy wanted us to switch sides and join them. Well, we had other, two other, especially long-term leaders that were there seven and a half years. They'd been there more than two years when I got there, and they had been through hell. They were all lieutenant colonel, lieutenant commanders. Commander Stocktail, Medal of Honor. See that MOH, Medal of Honor for his courageous resistance to the enemy, beaten, tortured many times over and over. Also, more than four years in solitary confinement. We had covert communication, but they were not eyeball to eyeball for over four years with another friendly American. Imagine being alone in a cell for years like that, being away from your family. He had four kids. Stockdale had four or five. Or Reisner had four or five. Denton, he had five. Another great leader. He's the one that was tortured to go into a press conference and say that the bombing was wrong and the Americans should stop it. And when they asked him, he said, I don't know what my country's policy is anymore on anything. I've been here a long time. But whatever it is, I support it 110%, basically in your face. Now, he was tortured to say it was wrong, but he didn't. He was in front of that, those uh, camera lights and press conference. They let him continue to answer a few more questions. And during that time, in front of those real bright lights, camera lights of those days, he started blinking. Morse code, T-O-R-T-U-R-E. And he blinked it twice. That was the first time the American government knew what was happening to us. The enemy didn't catch on. They probably would have killed him if they would caught on. That's the kind of courage and brilliance of leadership we had. Beaten, tortured. They didn't live in the, they didn't have a, a, a nice office on the top floor, okay? They had a cell by themselves. These three guys all were in solitary confinement for more than four years. Their all, their Christian faith was incredible. And if you read their books, you'll see that. Stockdale died early at 82. Denton died two months short of 90, and Reisner died two months short of 89. All they went through, and they lived a long time. I have many right now, I have several, more than five POW friends that are over 90 years old. And most of them are still coming to reunions. The average age of POWs today is 84. So I'm the kid. I was always the kid. I was the youngest guy in the camp back then, usually. I'm only 58 now, right? <laughs> well, those leaders were incredible. We had such amazing guys. They were such strong leaders. They were tough and they were kind. They were confident and they were humble. And the amazing thing was we encountered their love and we received it. They loved us and we loved them. In the POW camps, love, you think about fighter pilots, love is not the same. It's loyalty. It's, it's, a, it's attraction and willingness to suffer for the other person, that kind of love. And it was so powerful because it really helped us endure that. They had tried to shut down our communication. 
They had guards in the hall. If you got caught communicating, you were in big trouble. You might get tortured, beaten, put alone by yourself in solitary for a while. But one guy brought in a tap coat, and we learned how to tap. If you wanted to say hi, you did down two and over three for the H. And if you wanted to say I, H-I, down two and over four for the I. So it went like this. There's the H. There's the I. Now, you young people, you think you invented shortcuts. No way. We had shortcuts for everything. We had shortcuts 30, 40 years for cell phones. When we just would tap it on that wall and you, you could give you a shortcut. And if you saw where the sentence was going, you just tap, tap, and they move right on through it. So it was incredible how we were able to communicate. There's a book came out in 2019, Tap Code by Colonel Smitty Harris. Great book, and you'll see about his faith and his wife's faith. He had three, three kids, one of them born three months after he was captured. He never saw his son for seven and a half years, seven and three-quarter years, until he came home, and there was his son waiting. He and his three kids and wife, he's 92. I talked to him last week on the phone. All their family lives in Tupelo, Mississippi. Incredible folks. Well, we had a lot of incredible folks up there, and we had to tap on those walls and communicate covertly and stay connected, but also to encourage each other. I mentioned reaching out, staying together, collaborated, and covered. Covering, and by that I mean encouraging, being there for your friends when they're suffering. And that was a lot. So that support, that covering was so important. Courage always makes a difference. You heard of James Bond. I told you about James, Commander James Bond Stocktail. Well, James Bond always had a lot of women, good-looking women around him, and so did James Bond Stocktail, his wife, Sybil Stocktail. And she was the founder kind of the founding person of the National League of POWMI Families. And Sybil, shown here, was an incredible leader and inspired those other women, mainly, and families to be incredible leaders also. You see the picture of Sybil sitting here with the President of the United States? And she's telling him, we've been told to be quiet. It's in our husband's best interest to be quiet. And we're not going to be quiet anymore. It's been three years and nothing is happening. We don't even know if they're alive, many of them. We need to speak up and raise hell, basically, is what she was saying. And the president and Secretary Kissinger decided they probably ought to listen and get on her side rather than being against them. And the United States government changed its policy and started holding the communists accountable for our treatment, demanding an accountability. And what that did, it spread all over the world. The families got united, and the pressure they put on the communists enabled us, enabled us to actually have better treatment because when Ho Chi Minh died in the fall of 69, the new communist leaders would change within one week, came in, and stopped all the torture, for the most part, for the rest of our time there. So we went to live and let live. And that enabled us to do a lot of things we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Well, the families got organized, as I said. You've seen this is Lee's uh, wanted poster. I was wanted. And more than 1,000 people were wearing bracelets with my name on them. And uh, you saw that a little bit earlier. Many of them 
all of them just about were praying for me, I know, and I, I still hear from some. I heard from one last week on Facebook Messenger. said, I found you. I wore your bracelet. prayed for you every day. Wow. We didn't know anything about that, but we knew people were praying for us because of what happened. Eventually, we moved into Camp Unity back to the Hanoi Hilton, but we moved into large rooms there where Vietnamese prisoners had been. And in those large rooms, we got organized. Can you picture an 1,800-square-foot room with 52 tough, hard-nosed combat veterans in there? And I was in that cell almost two years. And in those two years, there were only twice when one person, one guy raised his voice at another guy and yelled at him because not getting along. And in both times, they apologized before we went to bed that night. Now, that shows you the kind of unity we had, the kind of love and loyalty we had. We took care of each other. We knew it was us against them. We knew that we had to stick together. And you know, it's kind of that way in the real world. Love binds us together. There's always something kind of trying to tear us apart. And we have to keep coming back together in forgiveness and teamwork and partnership. Well, that unconditional love in those cells was so important, and it's important everywhere we go. We bounce back. We bounce back. I was captured 11 days before John McCain, and then we came out the same day, rode the bus to the airport together, got on the same airplane, and flew back home on the same 141 together. That's John McCain on the front arrow, and that was me on the back arrow. Here we are on that 141 coming out of Hanoi. That's uh, Ken Fisher, my old leader there on the back left, me in the middle, and the far right arrow there is John McCain coming out of Hanoi. On the Hanoi taxi, we called it, March 14, 1973. Our goal was to return with honor. Well, I think we did. A little scratched and dented and rusted, but we returned with our honor. We'd never collaborated with the enemy. We stayed loyal to our country. We stayed united as a group. My parents were the real heroes. That's when I rejoined them when I returned back here. We spent three days in Clark Air Base. We got a physical, a uniform, and then we flew back home and landed to go see our families. They were the real heroes. Their faith was so strong. Their encouragement to others even during that difficult time meant so much. The Air Force said, you want to go back to work? I took a couple months of R&R vacation. I said, yeah. Flying? They said, yeah. So I went to San Antonio, Texas. I got requalified for flying, and off I went. Had a great Air Force career flying for, many years, for a good many years, and then I got into leadership development, and that's where, how I ended up where I am today. But it was a great experience coming back and being able to be a person again who's got a, uh, a goal and a life in the real world. People say, how did you do it? You must believe. Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're probably right. We believed we could. We had faith in God. We had faith in each other. We had faith in our country faith in our families, and faith that we could return with honor. We believed we could do it. you got to believe. And we also had, I think, 
an incredible foundation of faith. Our group was so founded in faith everywhere. We had church every Sunday. We had church every Sunday. And some of the sermons we heard in that big room were amazing. Guys that you'd never think would preach a sermon would preach an eight-minute homily, you might call it, but it was very powerful and inspiring. One of the things we learned was you can't do it alone. It's our nature as human beings, especially when times are good, to think that we're independent and alone. We can do it. And in a way, we do need to believe in ourselves and be confident and go do our work and our lives. But when times are hard and things are out of control in a POW camp or elsewise, you realize I'm not really in control. God's in control. And you turn to him and receive his love. It's important to believe. We've got to start by believing. But it's also important to receive. Receive God's love. Head, head knowledge gets you in the door and gets you going. But it's receiving his love that gives you the power to live the life that Jesus has called us to live to be that witness to that other person, to be that example, to be able to give love. The whole message of Jesus was all about love. This, this new commandment, love the Lord, love thy neighbor as thyself. You can't do that if you don't love yourself. And to love yourself, you've got to receive God's love. It's a battle. I battle receiving God's love every day because there's a part of me that says, Lee can handle this. But then I have to remind myself, no, Lord, I need, I just need to know. I just need to look at how much you love me. And that makes all the difference in the world. Well, I'm encouraging you to become a wellspring for others. Now, I've written several books, but this uh, 2012 book, Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, is probably a good place to start if you want to hear more stories. And we got a 30% off discount for you if you want to go to leadingwithhonor.com books or you can, go to, you can get a Kindle or whatever if you're interested. I also want to mention another book we're working on right now. It's called Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories of the Vietnam POWs. Now, ladies, I know you all want this, but guys, there's some POW stuff in there too. But what is so amazing is the stories, the incredible stories of how we met and met and decided to marry these women that we're married to. I got 20 stories in here. And I got a co-writer who's a really good uh, romance writer. And we are working on this book right now. It'll be out next year. The stories, as I say, are amazing. And I, had, I came home single. I dated a lot of girls. But none of them clicked at the right one. And then one day, I met Mary. A few months, well, about a year after I got home. Most of the guys got, met somebody and were married in months, a few months. I didn't meet her till a year, so it was about a year and a few months before we got married. But we've been married 46 years. And what a blessing. What a blessing. No question about it, God was involved in that. He had it all planned out because those other girls I met, boom, no. But then I met Mary, and it's like, bingo. Love is powerful. Love can bind us together in unity.
whether it's marriage or as a nation. And now the time when we really need to be loving our neighbors, all our neighbors, the ones we like and the ones we don't like. That's a challenge. And I don't know any other way to do that without the love of Jesus. And when he comes into me, he reminds me, Lee, you know what my command is? It ain't just love those you like. It ain't just love Mary. It's to love them all. And that's hard. But we need it. Well, I've enjoyed being with you all today. Thank you for the honor of being with you. Thank you for what you're doing in this community. Burn Hickory is burning up the neighborhood and doing it in a great way. And I thank you for that. It's been fun being with you. Take care and God bless. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. You can stay standing. It's okay. You know, every time I've, I've heard uh, Colonel Ellis' story, it just reminds me that, uh, that while most of us haven't lived uh, the experience he has, there's so much of what he shared really does represent how we live life here. And man, I just want to ask you to take that message today, to operate under the power, the love, the character, and the grace of what God has given us individually and also just cumulatively as a country. Let me pray for us as we dismiss. Lord, we love you today. God, we thank you today that you have given us life. We thank you for this faith family today that we can do life with, that we can trust, that we can be able to cast our burdens on and with. And, and God, we thank you most of all that we know you. God, we'd ask that we rely on you, we trust you, and we give you our lives. And God, today as we celebrate our country and what you have done in this place, God, let us not forget to celebrate you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, thank you for a great day, an encouraging day. Be with us as families this afternoon, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a fabulous week. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Were you inspired? Maybe you've got questions. Do you want to know more about Jesus? Then we'd love to hear from and connect with you. So take the next step with us by visiting burnthickory.com next. Again, thanks for listening. And hey, stay tuned by subscribing and stay up to date by downloading the Burnt Hickory app.